Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking His kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by, the, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. All right. Thanks. Better, Ben. All right. We're in John 11. If you want to turn to John 11 or pull up an app, I'm going to read through the context uh, that got us to where Ben just read. But as we do, kiddos, can I ask you a question, kids? What do you do when you're sad? Cry? Freeze. Sometimes you hug your mom. Oh. <laughs> what else? Kiddos, what do you do when, you, when you're sad? Go to your room and read, okay? Anybody else? Yeah. Try not to show that you're sad? All right, that's a real answer. Uh, Grown-ups, what do you do when you're sad? That, mostly, because you've been told you're not allowed to cry. <laughs> Try to fix it, 100%. We're going to talk about that all day today. Yeah. Eat. Say it again. Drawing. Somebody up here said eat. Okay. <laughs> this is a very deep kid voice that just said eat. Eat candy. All right. So it is. It's a, it's a universal, universal truth. Um, kids, what do you do when you're angry? Eat. <laughs> Yell into a pillow. I love it. <laughs> Scream. Yeah. Anybody else? Sometimes take it out on other people. Real honest answer. Again, grown-ups, what do we do when we're angry? Similar, yeah. Cool down. Great. Yeah. And then let's be honest, like I've referenced adults, like most of us, as, as we grow up, do the exact same thing. We just do them inside because somebody told us along the way we're not allowed to do those things externally, right? And so we try, to, we, we, we try not to show our rage. We try not to show our tears. We try not to show these things. I don't know about you, but this last week, I've felt more anxious and overwhelmed than I have in the recent past. Um, not because of like anything overt going on necessarily in my life. I actually had a great week. I was with different leaders on a couple of different retreats and conferences. It was a great week. But, but underlying, it was this like paid attention to, to global realities yet again and things that like I can't do anything about. And yet, uh, seeing things continue to, to happen in Gaza and the hospitals and blame that's not going to end well no matter who ended up 
uh, being at fault and things going on in Ukraine. And apparently our U.S. House of Representatives can't do anything about any of it. And so I found myself when I was with these groups of leaders back in my room at night and just kind of doing the thing that we all know we shouldn't do of just like, I'm just going to see what went on in the world today. And it's like, well, now I'm not going to sleep for weeks. Uh, it feels overwhelming. Anyone feel that at this moment? Looking broadly, feels so weary at times. It feels so sad. And of course, this is not the first time that I've had thoughts like this. Um, often, they hit a lot closer to home. Like it's stuff going on in my own family, shepherding issues, my own thoughts and feelings and this kind of So there's folks in the room that I know have had a really, really ridiculously hard weeks. There's folks in the room that I know have had really, really ridiculously scary weeks and, and despairing weeks. And, and all of us face things like this all the time. I'm not unique. We all face these things. We all feel overwhelmed. We all feel sad. We all feel weary. And, and how do we respond? What do we do when we're grieving? What do we do when we're overwhelmed? For me, I'm not the most self-aware sometimes, but I've learned over the years that my tendency is that when things feel out of control, I try to control the few things that I think I can. You resonate with that? Like if I can't fix A, I'll do my best to wrap my mind around B. I, I know it doesn't fix this over here, but it feels a little bit like I can do something. Anybody, anybody with me on that? No? Okay, that's fine. Other folks, when you face similar overwhelming things, just feel paralyzed. We, we, don't, know, we don't know what to do. And, and the grief and the sadness can just consume us and feel like it just weighs and weighs and weighs and weighs. And sometimes I just want to curl up and sleep till it's over. Is that anybody? Is that a few of us? No, that's okay. Some of us escape to other things and go, well, I'm not going to, I can't control it. I can't, I can't escape. I can't, I can't, I can't uh, hide away. I can't sleep till it's over because it's never over. There's always a next wave and a next wave. So we'll try to find something else to, to distract us. Anybody? Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> the, the, point, the point is that hard times are real. Brokenness is all around us. If we're willing to admit it, brokenness is all inside us as well. And we want answers. We want to feel less sad. We want to feel less weary. We want to feel less overwhelmed. We want somehow to make it all go away. But we can't. We can't sleep until it's over. We can't control life. Distractions only last for so long. We can't control ourselves sometimes, much less people around us, the world around us. And so where do we turn? Again, social media never makes anything better. Um, politics, people who are supposed to be in, in leadership. I had the honor of, of talking with Dr. Russell Moore this past week of Christianity Today, and he just made this blanket statement like, we're in the craziest time Christ Christians have seen in U.S. history. Craziest time related to, hist uh, to, to Christians in U.S. History. Maybe we turn to money to solve it. Billions of dollars haven't been able to stop wars around the world. We turn to all of these things, and then we find out all of these things just let us down. So we need better good news. We're all desperate for better good news in grief and weariness. And this is what we're doing as we walk through the Gospel of John as a church this fall. We're seeing Jesus meet many kinds of people with different stories, different struggles, different needs. And Jesus shows himself to be better good news to each one in their specific story, different struggle, 
specific need. And so today, as, as Ben brought us into the story, we see two sisters whose brother Lazarus has just died. And so Mary and Martha are engaging this devastation in different ways. And Jesus is going to be, be good news to both of them in their specific grief and their specific weariness. And maybe from them, God would grant us the grace to see him as good news in our grief and in our weariness. So that's my hope. We're going to be in John 11. Like I said, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to race through this passage. So John 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, a lot of commentators will make a, a specific note on the he who you love there's like four people, uh, Apostle John, who wrote this, and then Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are the folks that Jesus is referred to as this kind of love. It's basically like, this is like your brother. There's a deep abiding relationship here. Lord, he who you love is ill, is what the ladies tell him. Lazarus is sick, like bad sick, call your friend to say goodbye kind of sick, and Mary and Martha are understandably grieving. But also, this isn't the first time we met Mary and Martha. Anyone know, remember where else they show up? Any other scene come into mind uh, of a Mary and Martha distinction? Mary Poppins. That is another Mary. Okay, there's also like a Georgian Martha, but that's a really old book about hippopotamuses. Um, Mary and Martha show up in the Gospel of Luke. And here's kind of the entirety that we get of this family, again, that Jesus loves. Luke writes, now Jerry, uh, Jerry, now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now, I underlined all the Martha things. I circled all the Mary things. Pay attention. Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister named Mary. Oh, man, formatting's off. Who sat at the Lord's feet. Sat feet should be uh, underlined and listened to his teaching. But Martha, underlined, was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are, what's the words? Anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, here's the deal. Technically and culturally, Martha was doing the right thing. Hospitality is a far bigger cultural thing in their world than it was today. Martha is serving, welcoming a guest, into their, an honored guest into their home. But what does Jesus tell Martha? You're weary, you're anxious, you're distracted from the thing that matters most. You're missing what is most important. Utterly countercultural, because again, culturally, Martha's doing the right thing here. Mary, meanwhile, is just basking in Jesus's presence. Remember this, because Martha's tendency is going to pick up. We're going to see the pattern again in John 11. Meanwhile, what's Mary doing in Luke 10? She's sitting at the life-giving feet of Jesus. Mary's resting. She's just being. She's receiving. And this is also important because we see Mary's heart too in John 11. So, so back to John 11. What does Jesus say when he hears about Lazarus? When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Now, for the record, what's about to happen to Lazarus? We know the story. He's going to die. Jesus wrong? Or is Jesus offering us something 
bigger and better than we could imagine. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Like Luke 10, Jesus has good news for Mary and for Martha. He has really good news for Lazarus too, but the story is really about his interactions with his sisters. So more than that, in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, that familial love. And so when, because he loved her, it feels weird, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he loved her, he stayed away. Because he loved them, he stayed away. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea. And then he has this long conversation with his disciples, and we're going to skip down to verse 17, where when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Now, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she sat she rested, she received, nope, she played her pattern out. She immediately went to meet him, but Mary, Mary remained seated in the house. See these patterns still? Mary holds back, Mary's still, Mary stays. What about Martha? She runs, that's right, she's this woman of action. She marches right out and meets Jesus and doesn't say, oh Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. Instead, what does she say? She said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, do you picture like the finger in the, in the face? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Like this is heavy accusation. Martha, who couldn't not be responsible for everything around her in Luke 10. Martha, who was hosting and doing and busy and acting, puts the responsibility of Lazarus's death squarely on Jesus's shoulders. Can you imagine, like just from a, from a mere mortal side, can you imagine the weight of that? This is your fault that my brother, who you loved, by the way, little guilt trip, has died. And again, like we can't, we can't fathom the fully God, fully manness of Jesus. But it's not like he was 50-50 and he got to choose which he responded. Like he was, he fully received this accusation as a full human. Again, knowing what he was going to do, but can you imagine what it was like to receive that? Fitting to her character, though, she wants Jesus to do what? To fix it. To make it better. She wants Jesus to act. Whatever, whatever you ask of God, he'll give you. Ask something. Fix this. Do something. And Jesus' reply is really good news to the responsible, weary, grieving woman of action. He said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, y'all, this is a huge moment for Martha. The, the danger of, of reading this story 2,000 years later is it's kind of familiar. We know what's going to happen, this kind of stuff. But again, try to, try to strip away what you know. This is a disproportionately large moment for Martha. Is there any action, any ability, any control, any responsibility, any serving, anything that she can do to cause that? Your brother will rise again. This is a woman who tries to hold everything in her hands. There's nothing she can do. All of Martha's work, all of her serving, all of her attempts to control could not 
lead to this. This is a moment of truth for Martha. Are you going to trust in what you can see? Are you going to trust in what you can enact? Are you going to trust in what you can control? Are you going to trust in what you can do? Or are you going to trust me? What does Martha choose? Verse 27, she said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. I can't do this, but you can. I'm not giving up control as if just throwing it to the wind. I'm giving you control. Is that good news for someone who clings to control in hard times? Is it hard news? Yes, but is it good news for those of us who resonate with Martha? If we can learn from her, then man, there's a sigh of relief and a massive weight lifted off our shoulders. You good? Again, we're covering a lot of ground quickly. I'm trying to bring out some themes of the story. This is, this is the Martha side of the story. What, what, about, what about Mary? Verse 28, now Martha went and called to her sister, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she had heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And then skipping a few verses, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, tell me if these words sound familiar, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You heard those words before? Yes, it's the exact same thing that her sister said. Here's the difference. Martha followed her accusation by wanting Jesus to act. Again, ask God to fix this, is basically what she was saying. What's Mary's posture in this declaration? Mary's posture is deep, deep grief. She's weeping. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Ben Fort said right before we started, he goes, the fact that Jesus gets moved is deeply moving to me. There's something, there's something to that. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we find the shortest verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Y'all, just as Jesus' response to Martha was good news for her work and her weariness, so is Jesus' response to Mary good news to her sadness. Jesus wept. Now, now, there's different words for crying. There's sniffling. There's shed a single tear. What's, what's weeping? Get in a ball and cry a lot, as seen here. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I mean, that's a pretty good definition, right? Like uncontrollable, snot. Jesus had snot. I was thinking of the Christmas song, like the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I don't do respect to the ancients, but no, <laughs> it's false. Jesus was deeply set here. Here's something for us today. Sadness is not a bad thing. 
Neither is anger, for the record. There's all these emotions that are usually called negative. Again, there's a reason kids go, yeah, I, I want to scream into a pillow. I want to cry. I want to this. And then as we get older, we're like, ah, I just got to turn it inside. Because that never comes out accidentally towards someone it's not intended to come out to. Like there's all these things that are not right in the world. There's all these things that are not right in us. The answer is not wallow and just give up hope. But the answer is not fix it and control it and work yourself to death either. Like these are the, the two realities. This is the dichotomy in John 11. These two sisters, two personality types, if you will, two common responses to hard times and feeling overwhelmed and feeling out of control and sad. One is to stop and just feel and to be consumed and go inward and to grieve, not in a godly way, but just to grieve flat out in a ball, weeping, done, hide away, pretend it's not real. The other is manage, act, busy yourself, and fix it. And if you can't, blame yourself or blame someone else. And man, that is tiring. That's weariness. That's Mary and Martha and common responses in this room and for believing friends and neighbors and family members and for non-believing friends and neighbors and family members, this is how we respond to hard times. I have a friend who, talking about Jesus's command, that when Jesus summarizes what's the most important command in the Old Testament, it's to Lord the, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. I have a, have a friend who talks about it like this, and we can dive into this deeper another day, but, but just Pay attention just for a moment. Like he divides this into kind of four quadrants and goes, this is how we respond to things. Like we feel deeply in our hearts. Part of why we're called to love the Lord with our hearts, our emotions, like God made our emotions. They're good. Our soul, like Jesus offers us wisdom, offers us a way between acting and just feeling paralyzed. Um, heart, soul, mind, figure it out. And when again, respond to like, oh, this is a hard time here. What do I do? I turn into a chess master and try to figure out my circumstances, like figure it out and then strength, get it done. We're called to love the Lord with all of these. And yet very often, and especially when we face hard times, we take the Lord out of the equation. We just kind of revert back to one of these quadrants and just live there. My friend calls this, uh, his name's Elliot Grudem. He, he calls this like the below, below the line response and above the line response. One's much more inward. One is much more outward. Sometimes when some of us face hard times, sadness, weariness, grief, overwhelm, whatever, we just live in this top two quadrants. It's above the line. This is frankly how the Western world teaches us how to work. Figure it out and get it done. You face something hard, figure it out, get, and get it done. Got a problem to solve, figure it out, get it done. Finances, emotions even, figure it out, get it done. Family things, work things, figure it out, get it done. Hard times, medical things, figure it out, get it done. Fair? Tell a lot of us are taught to respond to things. Others of us just live down in this heart quadrant and just feel it. Just feel it. And what Jesus offers us is this true, deep soul, because that's where change really happens. It's not that he's pushing us away from these things. He goes, what would it look like to access our feelings through the wisdom of Christ? What, what, what would it look like to, to yes, like take, take steps, not be paralyzed, but do so by the power and through the wisdom of Jesus? Does this make sense? 
this resonate with you? Do you see where you kind of default to? This is our question for today. How is Jesus good news to both of these tendencies, the above the line, below the line tendencies? For, for, for those of us, whether we're followers of Jesus or not, who respond to hard times with action, figure it out, get it done. Let's be honest, at least for me, maybe this is just me, my action, my desire to figure it out and get it done, again, is, is much more about control than anything else. Again, is that true for you? Again, I can't control the big things like death in Mary and Martha's story. And at times, frankly, it's hard to control the small things. Wayward kids, pain, people, other people doing or not doing what they say they're going to do. These kind of things, great on me. I can't control them. And so I'll turn to busyness and action and I'll turn to what I can control. I feel satisfied because at least something is getting done. It feels makes me feel powerful, if I'm really honest. A power over at least something. And again, I don't think I'm alone. So for those of us who respond in that way, this is the good news of Jesus. As we see in this story, we don't have to be in control because God is. We don't have to be in control because God is. We don't have power over death or much smaller things, but guess what God has power over? death itself and life itself. And God cares for the small things we can't control. And how do we know that? Because God shows his power over the big things we can't control. We'll read it in a sec. Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He can do that. If he can do that, you don't have to hold smaller things together. You don't have to control because he is. As the story continues, Jesus tells Martha, this is down in verse 33, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Like, like he's dead. I know he'll, he'll come back. Like when we all will rise if we're in Christ on the last day. She's a good theologian for the record. Like that's, that's, that's deep theology there. But Jesus said to her, I am, what? The resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, and he camps out on this word, it's important, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks Martha, do you, what? Believe this. Not, do you know this? To be factual. Not, do you live as if this is true? Anyone in the room? Live as if, yeah, oh yeah, this, this truth is, is real. I'm going to live like it, but in our heart of hearts, go like, do I actually believe this? There's this massive difference between knowing and believing. This is the question for those of us who are bent toward action, who are bent toward control. Over time, that pattern, trying to hold everything together, leads to weariness. Tim Keller would say it leads to despair. You know why? Because we can't hold it together. There's a great line we quote in our house periodically. It's from The Hell, which is a fantastic movie. It's both lighthearted and richly deep on the plight of the, of the slaves in the South. And one of them looks at one of the owners and says, ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? And she's going, you're trying to hold everything together. You're trying to control everything around you. 
But can anyone feel that? Don't you want to be free from trying to fix everything? Don't you want to be free from trying to manage everything? Don't you want to be free from chessboarding life? The good news is you can be. And not like a fatalistic, purely feel, just let fate be fate, life and wisdom and, and the world are random and meaningless, so just give it all up. It's not that. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, what Jesus offers you is that you can be free from the false sense of control only, only, only because there's a God who is truly and fully and rightly in control. That's the only thing that frees us. It's giving over our fake sense of control to someone and something better. That's the good news. And so Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this in your soul? And, and again, like if I'm picturing this and I'm projecting myself on Martha, she like hesitates a little bit and she like wrestles with it. Like, well, the, the, what, what's the logic play? She kind of calculates a little bit. Like she's wrestling with this above the line. Can I figure out what does it mean that you're the resurrection life? What does it mean? Do I, do I actually believe this? And then there's this deep sigh of relief and she goes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe. We saw that back in verse 27. Jesus invites Martha and Jesus invites you when you're ready to admit that you're tired to move from knowing theologically that he's in control to believing in your soul. Are you willing to believe that? And not just on your good days, are you willing to believe that on your hardest days? That's good news for those of us who are tired of trying to hold it all together and weary from acting and not giving up. We can give over control of our lives to the Lord who can control it. And that's what Martha finally does. And what does she finally see? What does she see when she finally admits that Jesus is more powerful than her? When Jesus had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And we lose again, we lose a lot in the original language. Uh, one commentator said what Jesus is doing here, he's not calling so that Lazarus can hear him. There's some anger in this voice. One commentator says that Jesus is raging against death. Lazarus, come out. He's raging against death. And the man who had died came out, and his hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped in the cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Y'all, we are powerless. Can we just admit that? In so many things, even the things we feel like we can control, objectively we're powerless. But the good news is that Jesus is ultimately powerful. That's just one side. That's good news for, for those of us who resonate with Martha, who are weary from trying. What about Mary? How is Jesus good news when you are just deeply sad, consumed by grief? This is what we've already seen. Jesus enters into Martha's sadness. When he saw her weeping, those who are with her weeping, what did Jesus do? Jesus wept. Jesus gets grief. Jesus gets sadness. Jesus is willing to admit and acknowledge the sadness and brokenness and say the world around you is not as it should be. Like death was not part of God's design. We remember that, right? 
and we just accept it as part of life. That's not how God designed the world. Jesus is willing to admit and acknowledge their sad and broken things. And then on top of that, Jesus is willing to let Mary just feel those things. And then hear me, even more than that, Jesus is willing to feel those things with Mary. Jesus doesn't keep us at an arm's length and go, it's okay for you to feel that. You'll get here eventually. That's huge. Jesus, again, context, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's about to show his extreme power. And he could have corrected Mary and spoken truth to her like he did with Martha. But instead, what does Jesus do? He meets Mary exactly where Mary needs Jesus most. And he's simply present with Mary and crying with her, balled up and crying a lot. Per our earlier definition. Holding her in the valley of the shadow of death. There's a story of Job in the Old Testament, great suffering, and these three, fr- three friends who come to comfort Job, and they offer really terrible advice. All of them. They were at their best the first couple days they were with Job when they literally just sat with him and were silent and just grieved and felt and lamented and entered into Job's sadness and were with Job and present in his grief. And if that's us in our hard times, this is the good news for you. Jesus is present. And Jesus does care. And Jesus isn't just willing to kind of let you be sad till till the right moment comes. Like Jesus sits with you. I hate to say this because it's like a popular ad campaign now, but like he really does get us. Like his fully humanness gets it and is with us in it. And in, in raising Lazarus, Jesus gave Mary this beautiful gift. Like, like one action can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, right? For, for Martha, it's like, oh, prove your power. Oh, look, I raised a guy from the dead. For Mary, Jesus gave Mary this beautiful gift. He restored the brokenness. And we got to say, like, Jesus won't always make hard times better in this life. That's not the promise. But in this, he did. And so we're willing to go and ask in faith, God, will you take this away? Will you make this better? I can't fix this. Can you fix this? Will you fix it? A friend of mine uh, defines lament is telling the king of the kingdom that something's wrong in his kingdom and asking the king to fix it. Because only the king can. Grief, sadness puts it all on us. Lament says, hey king, there's something wrong in your kingdom that only you can fix. Will you fix this? And as a good king, Jesus sits with us. And sometimes he'll make it better. Not all the time, but sometimes he does. What Jesus does offer, though, in this life and the next, 
is resurrection and life in a deeper, truer, more eternal form. And this is not a punt. The hard thing about talking about eternity is all we have in our cognition is these few decades that we've lived, some of us even less than that. And so this feels real and everything else feels fake, but in God's timing, everything else is far more real. What Jesus offers us is resurrection and life in a truer and deeper and eternal form. And he offers Mary and Martha and all of us hope that every, every tear will be dry one day and everything sad will be untrue. That is soul and wisdom and truth. Soul level wisdom and truth if we feel hopelessness or paralyzed, feel that all is lost. And just like those of us who resonate with Martha, if you resonate with Mary, you can know that truth eternally. But do you believe it in your soul? Does that make sense? Is that good news? Um, here's how the good Dr. Tim Keller uh, summarizes this. He says, Jesus gives Martha what we could call the ministry of truth. That's what Martha needs most at the moment. He sort of grabs her by the shoulders with truth. Listen to me. Don't despair. I'm here. Resurrection, life, that's what I am. Then when he gets to Mary, he gives her what we might call the ministry of tears. That is what she needs at the moment. Because of his human identity, again, because Jesus was fully human, he is low enough to step into her sorrow, sorrow with complete sincerity and integrity and just weep with her. Now, frankly, everybody needs both at different times. There's good news for you because each of us faces hard times and sadness and suffering and death, yeah? Jesus meets you with the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. And Jesus shows on one hand his power and on the other hand his presence. And both of those things are good news. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you know objectively, but do you believe in his compassion and his control? It's good to rehearse these things because we got to prepare for hard times. It's good to rehearse these things in, in normal times, easy times, to prepare for hard times. And as we're talking about this whole fall, all of us have friends, neighbors, family members who are believers, who are not believers, who trust in Jesus, who don't trust in Jesus. They also, as it turns out, face hard times and sadness and suffering and death throughout their lives. And they, like Mary and like Martha and like us, trend one way or the other. They try to control things. They're weary or they're grief, grieving to the point of despair. As we talk about how Jesus sounds like good news, church, you have a message of hope that the world needs to hear. Jesus is control and compassion. He is power and he is presence. And so as we, as we ask how Jesus is good news to the weary and grieving, there's Kind of three quick principles here. I think just this, this is what Jesus would invite us into. First, know, know which ministry somebody needs. A lot of us will enter into grief and battle it with truth before tears. Christians are really, really, really well known for that bad thing. Oh, you, you're sad right now? Well, good thing. God is always in control and he's taking care of this right now. Okay, we good? Man, people just need to weep. Jesus was willing, are you? At times, do people need 
truth, prayerfully discern which ministry, quote unquote, they need at the moment. And then, and then can we, in winsome, caring, loving ways, maybe drip, drip, drip over time, not all at once, fire hose style, show how Jesus meets both in our exact areas of need. And then more on the personal side of things, do you truly believe that Jesus is good news for your weariness and your grief? Or is this an easy thing to talk about when we talk about the Bible, but hey, real life happens over here. His control, his compassion, his power, and his presence. Do you get that? Do you believe that? Do you believe he's good news in a way that actually matters in hard times and sadness and suffering and death? So I want to close by looking forward to this last reality, and that's that Lazarus was raised to life. But what happened a few years later, because Lazarus was a human, Lazarus died again. We don't think about that part of the story. Every human dies. Again, sadness, suffering, death is real. But Martha's words are true. In Jesus is resurrection and life. In Jesus, there's hope in hard times and sadness and suffering and death. But you know, the only way Jesus was able to prove and give that eternal hope and the permanent and eternal resurrection in life? What did Jesus have to do to prove our eternal life? He had to die. At the end of John 11, the high priest speaks these prophetic words. Caiaphas said to the rest of the Pharisees, do you not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish? Now he's talking about like, Israel's in an uproar because of Jesus. Let's just kill off Jesus. But we can look back and go, man, those words mean a lot more. And a few verses later from that day forward, they tried to make plans to put him to death. We're going to move into a time of communion. I want to encourage you to take bread and dip it into the juice or the wine and then to come back and sit. And we'll take this all together in a minute because I want us to thank Jesus for the good news and recall that it's only through his death that he was the resurrection in life and that we have resurrection in life. So go grab the communion. If you're in the back, they're on your tables. Come back and sit. If you're still at the tables, take your time. And I'm, I'm struck even as I look at the, the wine and grape juice, uh, the difference in those things. Like, Grape juice is so sweet, almost sickeningly sweet sometimes. Wine can be so bitter at times, and sometimes truth can feel bitter, and sometimes truth can feel really, really sweet. And so even that dichotomy, I think, plays into this a little bit. Maybe sometimes on Sundays, if you're used to one or the other, go, what is this other side? What's the sweetness in Jesus' death? What's the, the bitterness in Jesus' death? But but as we take this, Lord, we say life is hard. Hard times, sadness, sickness, suffering, death are real. And so church, as we take this, we're declaring that Jesus offers life and hope and that Jesus is both control and compassion. He's both power and presence. As we take this, we're declaring tangibly that Jesus is able to, to do what we can't do. And he knows our needs more than we know ourselves. Jesus, you make a way for resurrection and life through your death. Church, take and eat in remembrance of him. I'm going to take a moment and pass a basket around. There's also online and, and box in the back, but this is an opportunity to say, God, I want to offer myself to you um, in a very small way. God doesn't need your finances. He has power. He is control already. 
you know, there's this act of sacrificial giving to remember that where our treasure is, our heart is also. So will you stand as we continue to worship both through giving and through singing?